0: Welcome to Thanks for Oversharing, a podcast exploring all things mental health. I'm your host, Colleen Donovan Brown. I'm a licensed mental health counselor, a mother of three, and yoga instructor, offering sometimes funny, often passionate, hopefully helpful shares about healing and relationships. Okay, so we're back for episode three, and the first two episodes that I recorded covered the common colds of mental health. Episode 1 covered anxiety and fear-based thinking, and in Episode 2, we dove into depressive thinking. I'd like to use our time together this week to do a bit of a deeper dive on both and have kind of a follow-up to the first two episodes about how we can experience mood fluctuations in a healthier way. As I re-listened to those first two episodes, I realized there were a few things that I wish I had included. It's been very interesting for me learning and exploring this new platform of podcasting. Sharing what I have learned about healing and mood is pretty effortless and natural to me when it comes to family and friends and even sharing personal disclosures with clients at times. While collecting my thoughts and ideas for the podcast, when I was still in the initial planning stages, I truly felt ignited with inspiration. When it came down to actually pressing record... I certainly had all the baby deer walking super awkward brand new freaking territory feelings. It's brought up a good bit of vulnerability and discomfort. Also a ton of excitement and such a rush from all the support and positive feedback that I've gotten. But in the midst of all the vulnerable feels, I've been doing it anyway. Publishing it without the time to re-record and over edit and make it perfect because part of me knows I just have to get through some of these first few episodes and learn what I need to learn through the experience of doing it. I definitely had a little bit of a vulnerability hangover after posting the last episode in which I shared about my experiences with depressive symptoms. Again, I'm super comfortable sharing openly about these experiences with mood at this stage of my life when it comes to family and friends and even clients that I've worked with over time. I think self-disclosure can be a very healthy part of the therapeutic process. But again, this new platform brings up a whole host of surprising and sometimes uncomfortable feels. Sharing with an unknown amount of mystery audience members definitely led to some lingering vulnerable feelings. I did have a handful of people reach out pretty immediately after and say that what I had shared was really valuable and helpful for them. And that was confirmation for me. I felt like, okay, if putting it out there reached one to three people that wouldn't have typically had access to that information and it was useful for them, then I'm glad I did it. Anyway, personal reflections about my experience of podcasting aside, there were a few things that I definitely wanted to add and clarify to sort of complete and come full circle on what I have learned to be helpful about experiencing mood fluctuations in a healthy way. In both episodes, I talked a lot about non-judgmental self-observation, or as Tara Brock calls it, the practice of radical acceptance. So in terms of self-awareness, elevating your consciousness in a way that you're aware of judgment being this default setting of the brain, and being able to make a conscious shift into a space of curiosity and acceptance. And I realized that I used a lot of different words to describe the same practice. And I do that somewhat intentionally because I think that different words resonate with different people. And with a very simple practice like this, a big part of learning it is repetition. So at the risk of being redundant, I think it's helpful to have reminders, different verbiage, and open conversations that can pinpoint different aspects of your experience, and encourage insight that can be helpful. Okay, so obviously awareness, consciousness, reflection, they're all the same practice described with different words. And a big part of the practice of non-judgmental awareness that's super helpful for me is just that spaciousness, the distance that the practice gives me from my experience of mood. So Rather than identifying with my mood and seeing depressive symptoms, for example, as a part of me, like, oh, I am depressed, I see it as just a part of my experience. And the same thing with fear or anxiety. Again, instead of identifying with it, like I'm a really anxious person, it's just like, oh, this feeling is moving through me in this way. It's giving me feedback about my experience in the moment. So not only not identifying it, but also this anchor of knowing that it's just happening in the present moment. And that sounds really simple and really obvious. Like, yeah, your feelings are happening in the present moment. Duh. But the non-truth that fear and judgment will tell you is that your mood is going to last forever. And the script that fear often uses goes a little something like, You're going to die alone in this pit of despair and doom. And the contents of this fear-based script are just not real, true, or helpful, to use three of Byron Katie's favorite words. So those three little words, real, true, helpful, are great grounding filters for me in this practice of not believing everything I think. This curious questioning of your thinking comes from the work of Byron Katie. And she invites this exploration of your thinking in which you ask yourself, is this thought real, true, or helpful? And quite often, the answer is no. So I found self-observation of my experience of thinking super fascinating because our brain has unlimited potential to produce new thinking. But quite often, when we're stuck in thought loops around anxiety, fear-based thinking, or depressive thinking, we're stuck thinking the same dozen thoughts over and over and over again. And like we just talked about, most of these thoughts are not real, true, or helpful. They're just habits of thought that we get stuck in. And they skew our perception so that it typically gets a little more out of balance before we're even aware that we're stuck in this fear-based place or rut. I find that amusement is a really powerful therapeutic tool When I become aware that I'm stuck in fear. So one of my favorite ways to relate to that script of fear, you know, when fear-based thinking comes in and it's like, oh, shit, get cozy because you're going to die here in this pit of doom and despair. It's kind of like this awareness of like, oh, fear is talking to me again. And I have a choice of how I relate to my fear. And I can see it as kind of amusing. And so it's almost as if I'm like turning to this fear-based thought pattern. And I can just kind of go, okay, cool story, bro. And a little tangent detour here is that often when I notice that stuck, stale, stagnant energy, that's usually an indicator that... I'm in this habit of thinking that I've worn the F out, that it's no longer productive for me to ruminate about. I have learned everything that I need to learn about it. Elizabeth Gilbert has a quote that I love, and it goes something like, I've never seen any real transformation that didn't begin with the person in question finally getting tired of their own bullshit. And another little side note here is that Elizabeth Gilbert's writing was one of the first places I heard someone discuss their experiences with depression from a place of acceptance. In her book, Eat, Pray, Love, I read that before I went to grad school, and she writes this letter to her experience of loneliness and depression, and the way that she relates to herself in those moments of vulnerability truly changed the way that I related to myself. She says something like, You know, if you need to take the antidepressants again, I'll I'll love you through that. If you don't take the antidepressants and, you know, you need to fumble through it and learn what you need to learn, I'll love you through that. And then she tells this little story that I just love. She points to an experience that she had when she was living in New York where she was walking down the street and mistakenly recognizes her own reflection but sees it just as familiar, like, oh, hey, I know that person. And she's going to, like, greet and wave at this person from this familiar place of, like, oh, there's my friend. I, I know her. And so she uses that reminder and that invitation, you know, in this recognition of her ability to relate to herself in a loving way and just says, you know, always remember that in an unguarded moment you recognize yourself as a friend. And I just loved everything about her Vulnerable truth telling and sharing about her experiences with loving and befriending all parts of herself. Okay, circling back to this practice of non judgmental awareness, I want to anchor in that the practice is not about changing your thinking so that it's positive thinking or better, but again, just giving yourself some space and some separation between you and your thinking so you're just not blindly identifying with your thinking or blindly accepting your thinking as real, true, or helpful. So when we observe the way that our thoughts are shaping our experience and our reality, it's interesting, but again, not necessarily real, true, or helpful. So when we know that we have this kind of amused separation and this ability to witness, again, my favorite simple practice involves just watching those fear-based thoughts and responding with a simple okay cool story bro quite simply we get to make a conscious choice about how much power we give these thought patterns how much we're willing to allow them to influence our beliefs about ourselves so it gives us this gift of creating this conscious healthy distance so we're just kind of watching the thoughts like okay fascinating look at what my mind is doing there and It's not necessarily real true or helpful, which we're often kind of lazily in this default setting of just believing everything we think. And so it's kind of interesting to observe the thoughts rather than believe them and get caught up in them. And often the healing process involves forgetting momentarily, that we don't have to believe everything we think, and we get caught up in our thinking, and then remembering and going, oh, okay, look what my brain did there. And a part of this awareness for me is just kind of seeing that the brain is this computer it is always going to give you the data points that it's most used to giving you like oh here's a stressful situation or here's a new situation or okay we just came off of a high mood so here's a you know bucket of a dozen (laughs) lower mood thoughts uh, to ruminate about and one of my favorite things to nerd out on is neuroplasticity, which is our brain's ability to change neural pathways. So this was a really cool study and discovery because, you know, we once had this belief about mood and brain functioning that was like, here's your DNA. Maybe you have a history of psychosis in your family or you have you know, there's a history of um, mood disorders uh, or, in you know, for me, it was like I had this propensity towards depression. Maybe I'll just always have that. But learning about neuroplasticity and the brain's ability to literally influence your DNA, your makeup, is that practices like meditation and mindfulness and this consciousness and this awareness and this whole practice that I've been blabbing on and on about for the last 15 minutes can truly change your wiring it can change the structure of your brain so the brain's a muscle and these neural pathways that are most commonly traveled are the easiest to access but when you make this conscious effort to take the road less traveled to go, oh, I see what my brain's doing there. Look, it's about to dive into this pit of doom and despair and this thought pattern and this loop of thinking. What if I don't give it power? What if I observe it? What if I don't identify with it? And then you get this spaciousness and you have this amused relationship with observing this process of mood fluctuation. And then you get the power back. Instead of being victim to your mood, you have the power to go, oh, cool story, bro. I'm watching it. I'm seeing it. And I'm not engaging with it in this way that's taking me down into the pit of despair. I can walk next to it and see it. And again, in that sense, it can be kind of amusing or poetic or interesting or fascinating when you're not feeling like you're drowning in it. And it is super helpful to give yourself kindness and grace in this practice and to know that it's a likely possibility that you will forget and you will get caught up in your thinking. But we have this gift of remembering and we get to give ourselves the gift of this spaciousness and this awareness. And when we give ourselves that gift, again, we're anchoring in those neural pathways. We're literally changing, you know, our brain chemistry and the structure of our brain. So it's super exciting. And then we have the ability to not like wrestle with our experience in the moment and get caught up in it or identify with it or make ourselves wrong or bad because of these habits or think of thinking so again key ingredients are not believing everything that we think allowing yourself to experience it in just the present moment so that means when your fear-based script tells you so this is where you live now in this pit of doom and despair and oh your relationship, is going through a challenge and you feel disconnected and fear-based thinking or depressive thinking will immediately tell you that your husband's probably going to leave you, your kids will end up hating you, and you're just going to die alone here in this pit of doom and despair because you're a bad person and nobody could possibly care about you because you're so fucked up. I mean, you can fill in the blanks with your own fear-based thinking, but there's a common thread in most depressive thoughts. They carry the same theme of loneliness lasting forever, and again that you're wrong or bad, so there's, you know, shame mixed in there. It's this like perfect storm of creating this pit of doom and despair. And this is your death sentence, and you're gonna live this way until you die, which again is not real true or helpful, because we know that most moods fluctuate, and we know that most people who experience depression can again experience joy and contentment and connection. But it it the practice is, okay, I'm watching that, I see that, and cool story, bro. I get to choose how much power that gets. I also want to zoom in on loneliness somewhat briefly. This may quite possibly eventually be a solo topic for an entire episode, but obviously loneliness is a big part of the experience of anxiety and also the experience of depression. And again, loneliness is a healthy human emotion And it's actually a really healthy sign if you're feeling lonely. It means that you're not a sociopath because it really is an indicator that you're longing for true connection, which again, super healthy. I think one of the common myths around loneliness is that it can be, air quote, cured if you are around another person or other people. So like if you're experiencing a lonely feeling and you happen to be physically alone, sometimes the mind just connects to like, oh, well, we could be more social or do more things. But that's often really not the case because most people can also identify a time when they felt lonely when they were around lots of people or even when they were super close to someone, perhaps even while having sex with another person. Literally the closest you can be physically to someone but also still have this very disconnected, alone feeling inside. For me, typically, loneliness is an indicator that I need to reconnect in a loving way to myself. Like, I'm not going to be able to connect with anyone fully and freely if I'm not feeling plugged in and connected to myself and, and have that true belonging within myself. And that's a whole gig. Like, having the awareness and the ability to take ownership, you know, for someone who's like a serial (laughs) affirmation validation seeker having the ability to turn inward and really fill up from within is well first of all you feel like you're quenching the thirst that's been there all along but it takes some time because the immediate reaction is oh get external instant gratification and it's like oh well that wasn't fulfilling i need more 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 of that And being able to connect in an authentic way to meet your own needs allows me to be much more present and connected in my relationships in loving and healthy ways. I think loneliness too has a lot of negative social connotations. Like loneliness is not really a socially acceptable thing to express. I think that it can be perceived by other people as kind of blamish because you're When you're telling someone that you feel lonely, it's quite possible that they may become defensive and internalize it and think that it's somehow their fault or then they have this pressure to now alleviate your loneliness. I love the way Brene Brown talks about the language she and her family use around describing and sharing openly about their experiences of loneliness because it's a very everyday kind of conversational word for them. So it takes away any blame or obligatory, like you have to fix me now kind of stuff. And um, she gave some examples of how they communicate about loneliness. You know, even simple stuff, like they'll say, I'm, I'm having that lonely feeling, or I don't like going to that restaurant, it gives me the lonely feeling. Or she mentioned that at times her kids will say, can my friends stay the night at our house? Her house gives me the lonely feeling. So you'll notice a theme here, but I truly believe that the healing process begins in every way with the ability to express and connect to your experience of emotion without judgment. So being able to express loneliness even to yourself and to have this internal awareness, but be able to express it to those around you that are close to you without this pressure or judgment can be so healing in itself. I know for a lot of mothers that stay home part-time or full-time with kids, obviously you're around other humans all day, but it can feel very, very isolating and that's often because the connection that you have with your kids is very anchored in service. So you're giving and giving and giving to another person without the opportunity or chance to even check in with yourself, to even begin the process of what may look like reconnecting to yourself. Or sometimes it's hard to even take the time to meet basic hygiene needs when you're caring for other tiny humans. Uh, the ability to take a crap by yourself is sometimes hard to come by when you're at home with your kids. So you're literally not alone at all, but, but without having that time, even mental space to process the fact that you're feeling disconnected from yourself can be pretty draining. So much of what I like to offer in terms of the invitation that loneliness can bring up is an opportunity to reconnect with yourself in a loving, accepting, and authentic way. Being honest about your needs and being able to articulate when they're not getting met, being able to meet them in some way through the connection and reconnection with yourself makes it much more likely that you'll be able to have interactions with others that can be authentic, loving, and bring meaningful connection. So often, we experience this loneliness, we judge ourselves for feeling it, oh, I'm a loser, I'm a loner, nobody wants to be around me, I don't even want to be around me, you know, I don't want to be around anyone really either, I'll probably just die alone, (laughs) you know, which is true, we are born alone and we die alone, so it's this lifelong existential crisis that is part of the human condition, we are alone, but we're also social animals that long for true belonging and meaningful connection. So this conversation around loneliness needs to be able to happen in some of your key relationships. And a big part of being able to have this conversation and articulate these feelings is being able to hold the dichotomy of how can I connect to my own self in a meaningful way and have this experience of true belonging within my own relationship to myself so that it's possible for me to relate to, to others in a meaningful way and to experience belonging. Again, this is something that I loop back to often because, as I've mentioned, most of my life I find myself on a desperate search for validation and kind of needing this attention from others, which is really fucking exhausting. So in my adult life, I practice is to be very conscious about that and kind of patch the hole in the bucket, so to speak. So repairing the foundation of connection to myself in a healthy way and knowing that I'm enough and I don't need external validation to verify my enoughness. And this can be a gentle daily check-in like, okay, how's the foundation? Um, again, patching the hole in the bucket, repairing the foundation of connection to myself and I can be certain that the foundation is shaky if I find myself wanting, pulling from others, especially my husband. And when you're in this desperate place and you're pulling from others, literally nobody wants to offer you connection. Because it's as if they can sense that there's a hole in the foundation. And they know on some level, likely unconsciously, that there's nothing that will be able to fill you up. So before they even engage with you, they can experience you as exhausting. Just as you're feeling exhausted, kind of hungry, looking for that. So you can feel pretty repulsive. You can sense that others can be often repulsed by you when you have this exhausting, draining need for connection and validation. Um, A healthy person will often move away from that. A codependent person might lean into that. But again, it will never really fill you up, even if this codependent person is to offer everything and put in all this effort to support you in the way that they think that you need or you think that you need or want. Because there's a hole in the bucket. There's this leak in the foundation. So again, that's probably a great subject for another episode to dive into a little deeper, but I did want to kind of touch on loneliness and the quest for true belonging and connection because I definitely think that they're a part of our experiences of fear-based thinking and again, how fear-based thinking can manifest as depressive, depressive symptoms or the experience of anxiety. So I will conclude today's episode by inviting us all to go forth and love ourselves like it's our job, because it definitely is.